Thanks for downloading this podcast from Brum Radio. For more programs, search our podcast page at brumradio.com. Peace in our time. Good evening. I mean that most sincerely. I am the BBC, as you can see. Huh. And here was the last news. This is the third, or is it the fourth, anniversary of the nuclear misunderstanding which led to the Third World War. The very shortest war in living memory, lasting two minutes, 28 seconds, up to and including the signing of the peace treaty, fully blotted. The population of Britain was reduced from 58,746,379 to the 20 survivors who regrouped themselves to rebuild society. Quickly, the familiar patterns of civilization were re-established. But, just as life was returning to normal, people started turning to... <clears throat> turning into other things. What is it, darling? Chicken? No, it's Daddy. Get your hand out of my drawers. I'm a mother. I, I think I may turn into a dead sitting room. Ah, ah, that's... that's <clears throat> probably atomic mutation. Take three guineas for your rent. With characteristic courage and determination, the entire population dedicated itself to perpetuating the British way of life. God save our gracious queen. Long live our noble queen. God no, no, save our no, queen. No, Send her no, in. no, 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 we don't sing that any longer. You don't? No, we, we sing now that God should save Mrs. Ethel Shroke of 393A High Street, Leytonstone. Oh. Of the 20 people who are known to be left alive in England, she stands next in line to the throne. The church. This is the instant god kitcher. Alive. Up there. Violence. No, 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 no. See, reason, no, no. No, you're working your mouth. The family. I want you to treat me just as if I was your father. See the bed sitting room bringing together for the first time in living colour the entire population of Great Britain in order of height. A team of surgeons at the Woolwich Hospital have just accomplished the world's first successful complete body transplant. The donor was the entire population of South Wales. I am forced to ask, have we forgotten the bomb? Bomb? The bomb. Mm. Bomb, bomb, the bomb! I just signed a sir on that line. God save Mrs. Ethel Shroke. Welcome, welcome everyone. Welcome to a dark and depressing future. Um, That is, of course, not necessarily true, because we're going to hopefully make it fun. You're listening to The Scream Brum Show here on Brum Radio. What you heard there was the uh, trailer for 1969's Bed Sitting Room. 
um, the fabulous sort of, if you like, British El Topo is a rather pretentious way of saying it, but a sort of absurdist post-apocalyptic film, uh, Spike Milligan and various other luminaries of the kind of counterculture of the time. Fantastic, hilarious film. And that's about the funniest it's going to get today, I'm afraid, because our theme on Screen Bum Show today is dark futures. We've, 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 We've been looking the news, we've been seeing a few kind of slightly depressing things going on, and we thought the best way to address it was to really go all out. We know many, many films deal with the future. We know that in the 1950s there was a lot of optimism, everyone was wearing tinfoil suits, flying around in jetpacks and eating pills that had all their nutrients in, and things got slightly less optimistic as time went on, um, and the filmmakers of the 70s and 80s and beyond like to think that the future may not be a great place well we don't know we don't know whether we agree so that's what our debate is going to be on the show today we're going to be talking about films that address the dark ideas of the future and we'd like to know what you think we um as ever we have our online mechanisms of getting in touch with us so mainly uh, twitter so if you're on twitter you can tweet us at Screenbrum. Um, and we also now, very excitingly, in our new high-tech environment, have an email address, right? What is it, Tim? High-tech environment. The dark future still encompasses a lot of emails. So, yes, <laughs> you can now email us at info at screenbrum.co.uk. That's info at screenbrum.co.uk. Uh, and we will respond. Let us know what your favourite dark film dark future films or tv are um and of course the voice you did hear there was none other than the terrifying depressing vision of the future that is mr tim wilson hello tim hello how is everyone (laughs) it's a good day it's a good day to discuss the dark future it is it is let's get jolly and happy and tell lots of jokes but don't worry it's not just going to be me and tim talking about uh, how how things are going to be awful Uh, we've got someone else to tell us all about that as well we have our special guest in the studio mr joel backledge hello joel hi now joel is a uh, local filmmaker um and uh, an you're interested in the way that the future is represented Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. um, well, Joel's going to tell us a little bit more, and we're going to be running through our top five films each um, that represent the dark future. We'd love to hear from you. So again, screen us. Uh, excuse me. Tweet us at screenbrum and email us at whatever it was that Tim said earlier. Info at screenbrum.co.uk. Okay. It'll, um, it'll, it'll implant itself in your dark future brain. Let us uh, let us enough. let us have some music now to get us uh, back into. Uh, you know, calm state, and this is a fabulous, fabulous piece of music. It is from the uh, the dark future represented in the film City of Lost Children. It's from the soundtrack of that, um, and it is Angelo Badliamenti. Um, so you already know it's going to be good. Uh, and then to add to the quality, with vocals by none other than Marianne Faithful, and this track is "Who Will Take My Dreams Away." Who Will Take My Dreams Away from the City of Lost Children, which is a 1995 movie, Ron Perlman, fabulous dystopian view of the future. So there we are, dark futures are our theme, and we would like to welcome the person who suggested this and came in, which is um, Joel Blackledge. Hello, Joel. Hi. So why are you, are you interested in, 
in grim things or is it just the future? <laughs> uh, it's the future in general, I think. I'm uh, interested in sci-fi and how, mm-hmm. how filmmakers imagine the future. And I think dystopia has always been somewhat popular. I think it's especially popular right now. Mm. Um, and I ho- I'd like to think we're not all just losing hope. But if you go into the cinema today, you can see Ready Player One. Isle of Dogs, Pacific Rim, Uprising, all A Quiet Place. They're all dystopian films. Mm. Um, and I think pretty much any day of the week you can find some kind of dystopian movie in a cinema. Um, so I think it's... It, it, and, and obviously we're all worried about the future, I mm. think, especially now. It feels like we've been in a permanent state of... Uh, pre-apocalyptic anxiety for a while. <laughs> it does, it does, it does. And but people, obviously, this isn't new. I mean, this has been going on as long as filmmaking, really, hasn't it? People have always been terrified uh, of the future. Or I would say, if you did a poll on which, you know, how well the film, how well the future looks in film, you're going to have ninety percent bad. 10% good um, I don't know I, I do feel that's changed though I do feel like there was a lot more optimism in, in the 50s you know all those kind of visions of the future where we'd all be living in in space pods and uh, robots would be doing all the work have, have been sort of supplanted by that we'll all be living in huts and robots will be slaughtering us <laughs> um, but yeah I, I guess <laughs> these are the times we live and um, Tim are you a fan of um, of this kind of cinema Well, I think always think when you talk about the dark future, you're actually talking about the dark present a lot of the time. Mm, yeah, totally. Because nearly most films that come and come and do sort of portrayals of the future are having something to say about the now. Yeah, and yeah. many of I think many of our choices will be supplanted with that idea of when they're made and how they reflect their times in which they're in. So yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the interesting you mentioned a quiet place there, Joel, which is obviously a big film that's that's, yeah. that's out at the moment where the, the central conceit is you're not allowed to make any noise or you'll get consumed. And, and that's a kind of really interesting way of looking at the modern world where there is so much noise, but there is also this sense of censorship and can you say anything and you'll get lipped on if you, if you tweet the wrong thing or you, you, know, you, you say something that might be deemed as offensive. I think that's quite interesting, the way that, as you say, these films are about how we live now as, as just as much as they are about the future. And we're going to be doing our top fives, right? That's right. That's right. We're going to be doing our top five films um, about the future, and um, we're going to be having the chat. And Joel is going to be telling us about his work. So, Joel, you're a filmmaker, yes. Um, and is the future a particular? It sounds like it's something to be hard to make because presumably there's a lot of money involved with making futuristic things. Yeah, there, it depends how you do how you do it, and actually, it depends how expensive you think the future is going to look. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, is true because you do get some some films set in the future which actually are very cheap because it's after after the collapse basically mm. of technology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they when they decided to when Steven Spielberg decided to make a sort of decrepit, horrific future, he he chose Birmingham as his place of filming, which we you know we. We're ambivalent about choosing, <laughs> right? Uh, but yes, good point. And, and are you working on the future? Uh, have you made any film set in the future? So I made one uh, quite a few years ago called The Owl and the Pussycat, um, which I made with uh, Sam Swan, who's also a filmmaker. And that, uh, that was set in the future. We did the whole thing with photographs, partly as a way to contain our resources and, and all that kind of thing, because it was really a no-budget thing. And we shot it in London largely around the city of London and it was a film very much about surveillance and about how you might move around a city when everything is being watched and how people work around surveillance because London, if you shoot it the right way, does look like a very 
sort of noirish sci-fi mm. landscape, especially in the in the city, especially yeah. at night time. I bet, yeah, yeah. And the thing about the city, in, in particularly the the financial capital in London as well, because I, I was an extra in a film there many many years ago, and it's weird at the weekends because there's nobody there. Yeah. It's completely deserted, and it looks like there's been an apocalypse just as you walk around in general, just because there's no, yeah, there's no one bursting out of Starbucks. Yeah, it's, it's designed to accommodate a lot of people five days a week, mm. and then no one else <laughs> on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, I think they did that when they filmed Twenty Eight Days Later. Yeah, they basically filmed it sort of, you know, Christmas Day, five o'clock in the morning in the city, and they just had occasionally people just standing around saying, "Please don't walk down this road for a minute." But they managed to make it look deserted. Uh, it's impressive. Um, okay, well, now we're going to be coming back. Uh, we're going to play some more music now, and then we're going to come back with the first choices for our dark future films. And um, I have had a lot of selections of music um, already suggested to us, and Tim has sent me a list, uh, and he's been very insistent on this. So we're going to play one of, of your choices now, uh, Tim. This is from uh, the soundtrack to Escape from New York. you want to tell us a little bit about the film? Um... It's John Carpenter's very indulgent film, Escape from New York. Kurt Russell kicks a lot of butt. <laughs> Prison Break. Uh, lots of lots of lots of sort of uh, satire, satirical elements, and a very very signature kind of John Carpenter esque score. It's not John Carpenter esque. Synth- it's John Carpenter <laughs> filled with the kind of uh, bass lines, bass line sort of uh, sort of motifs that you come to expect from those John Carpenter esque films. So uh, let's have it. Yeah. Creeping out, right? 69th Street Bridge by John Carpenter from the Escape from New York um, soundtrack. Not to be mistaken for Escape from L.A., which uh, he did as a few years later, which uh, I don't know. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I can't comment on it, but there we go. Um, Welcome, everyone, back. Uh, This is the Screen Brum Show here on Brum Radio, where we're talking about dark futures. Um, I can't actually just say the words normally. I have to put that rather portentous voiceover. I'm sorry, everyone, if it's uh, freaking you out while you're having your lunch. Dark. It, well, it is Friday the 13th today. It is Friday the 13th. So I'll be slipping in the occasional Friday the 13th related gif onto our tweets. Okay, we'll yeah. follow those for um, and I believe images. It's National Kissing a Day today as well, so that's a nice combination. A national yeah. Kissing Day? It's National Snog Day or something. National <laughs> Snog Day. Um, unfortunately, it Dark is radio, features, and there's a desk in between us, so Tim and I will not be snogging today. Um, that's not a vision of the future we want. <laughs> that's a dark, that's that's a dark very future. Dark. Uh, anyway, we're going to be talking about what films we think represent the dark future or have something to say about a dark future. And I am going to go first because this film has already been mentioned. And I'm saying it from a... Usually when we do this, we talk about films, not necessarily our favourite films in the genre, but our films that we think are exceptional in some way or have something to say. I'm actually going against that this time. And I'm going to talk about a film that I think um, encapsulates everything that's hateful <laughs> about this genre. And it is uh, what it been mentioned, and it's very, very new, and it's very, very lauded. It's Ready Player One. Now, I don't know if either of you have seen it. I have, yeah. Yeah? Um, and I don't know what you think about it, but I... Um, I found it profoundly depressing, actually. I really hated it um, because, uh, I mean, I didn't think it was particularly well made. I thought some, some ex- gloves are off. excruciatingly <laughs> bad, um, uh, excruciatingly bad uh, decisions made. There's an awful exposition. Anyway, th- 
whether it's a good or bad film is one thing, but it's a very nihilistic film for me. It's 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 you know everyone's talked about oh you know the nostalgia. It's it's a kind of joyous um, look back at the nostalgia of the eighties, but it sums up everything I think that these films do, which is to say, often, which is to um, is to say oh the future's awful. What we're going to do is revel in the past. We've got to look backwards. There's no tension. And early on in the film, the main character says something like, you know, um, I was born in so-and-so, uh, at which point everyone stopped trying to create anything or stopped trying to make anything better, and we all just you know, fell back in. And that is what this film does. And it doesn't... It, it does it joyously, in my opinion. It says, do you know what? You know, everything was better in the past, and let's just let's just flee from the dark future and uh, and let it and let it kind of happen uh, and just hide away from it. And that's what I found most profoundly depressing. It just seemed like a kind of giving up type of thing. And then I know there's lots of different views, and I'm sure Tim, who is gesturing at me, will have a different view on that. But that is my choice for number one. Um, is is Ready Player One? So this is a view. Those of you that somehow have avoided seeing this. It is um, a film in which, uh, set in the future, where everyone basically retreats into a virtual reality kind of representation of life, which is more glamorous and exciting, with everyone can be beautiful and have cool clothes and drive cool cars, and the crumbling reality can be ignored. And it just seems to be, you know, advocating a retreat from reality and suggesting that there's nothing worth um, looking forward to or building. Um, so I was quite upset by it um, for that reason. Um, so there you go. That is Blake's number five for a dark future. Ready player one. Okay, now um, the gloves are off, the mics are open, and you can respond. Gentlemen. Okay, there's a lot of things about Ready Player One that I really enjoyed. First of all, it is a blast, and it is a lot of fun. Despite the... Uh, you, 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 you saw a particular vision of it, which I didn't engage with, and perhaps the, that level of uh, detailed kind of malaise and seeing a dark future i saw it as a as a spielberg spielbergian blast through the last 40 years of pop culture and it stands amongst the classics it mentions in many regards i think there are many things wrong with it and i thought it's probably to do with the source material more than it is to do with spielberg right mm-hmm. i think spielberg makes does a better job than the book does well that's certainly true yeah. that is really very much true um and the other thing i really liked i really liked this kind of um I think Spielberg's got this thing where, where a lot of his films focus on heroes. He's very, he's very, he's very a thing about um, standing up for people that you know stand up for something and believe in something and have a mission to go on. And you know, he's, that's a very Spielbergian thing. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of very, it's a, it's a. I think it's as much an autobiographical piece about Spielberg than it is about anything else and about his films and how he stands up for people to believe in. And I think he tries to see himself in those character in the in the lead character as well, as a geeky kid and. Um, and then he, I think the, the, the juxtaposition to all of that is Halliday's character, which mm. is, I think, the film that could have been a really interesting, really a d- deeply sad film is the Halliday character, Mark yeah. Rylance's character. Yeah, so this is someone who, the, who, who, again, is essentially the, encapsulates, embodies this idea of, of just retreating from reality and just yeah. living in a game. I would have loved to see a, a film with him and his, and his, and his journey, and, or maybe there isn't enough substance there, but I think that, his, that, that performance is awfully sad. Mm-hmm. That's the sad thing for me, for mm. not, not anything else. I, I, was, um, I wasn't taken so much by the corporation stuff. 
Um, some of that was kind of a bit. Yeah. Um, I really loved the whole drive sequence with King Kong chasing down the. Ra- I mean, that was just exhilarating, right? It was yeah. amazing. I don't, you know, and the and the world that he created, and and then of course, you know, being a Brummy, the bit I loved was the continuity scenes around the jewelry quarter where yeah. you turn right and you're in another <laughs> part of the jewelry quarter going down the road again, going down Library Street up. Uh, yeah. so on and so yeah, forth I loved all of that and it, you know you invest in it from and I loved that scene where they were they were um, I've forgotten the name of the, f- the female Olivia Cook's character you know, they, where they're standing on top of the custard factory looking out to Birmingham mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with, yeah. with extra <laughs> and everyone's, everyone's and you can hear it in the cinema the people who knew where that scene was they're going that's the custard factory <laughs> on the roof isn't it yeah but I'm not um, sure I don't feel it's enough to build but a whole film <laughs> no no <laughs> a recognition for a few prestigious. I, I, I would say you know that the film does have a lot to say about where we're going. I think Ben Mendelsohn did the best as he could with his corporate bag. Ben Mendelsohn's always fun, no matter what you. It's always fun, but it's. I don't he, know. he was just a. He was just you know generic corporate bad guy yeah. number seventy two um, with some making but ridiculous. What I will decisions. What, I will say. I, I understand where the where the negativity comes from, but I saw it as a blast of pure sort of childlike amusement, mm-hmm. and that is classically very Spielberg. And I had a great amount of fun. There you go. There you go. You are fully inclined to uh, disagree. Um, Dystopian, Joel... yes. Fun, yes. Joel, See, there you go. You can do have it. Have you seen it? I have, yeah. I thought it was completely awful and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, an excellent yeah. response. Okay. Um, do you, yeah, okay. Um, I went to see... Um, yeah, anyway. I was going to give you a, a... And there is that one scene where they were going to the, the, the set the f- on The Shining, yeah, which no, I think is amazing. That is great. That, that is, great. is great. And I do love the bit where the Chucky comes up and the guy screams out, it's Chucky, and I laughed my head <laughs> off there. That was very, very funny. So there are so much to love. I, mean, I think one of the problems I had with it is this: is there's no, I couldn't care because they were literally in a computer game. There's no peril when they're doing the when they're being chased by by uh, King Kong. If he eats them, it doesn't matter because they're only playing a game. Uh, so I don't really understand why I'm supposed to feel any sense of jeopardy because you know they just they can just reboot. Um, it doesn't, you know. I don't really. That was the problem I had with it. One of the problems I had with yeah. it is just utterly utterly kind of it was literally watching people play a computer game that's literally what it was with the, the equal amount of peril and involvement you know um but there you are you're allowed to disagree you're allowed to disagree. <laughs> you guys out there let, um, let us know whether you think we'd love I'm to know what you think of ready player one because i imagine most of most of our re- listenership have uh seen it so. we may well do so let us know and we hope you haven't supported it if you haven't but you know clearly we're split on it here in the studio let's carry on let's give us some more of our top fives. Joel, are you ready to, to let us know what you think uh, a good dark future film is? Yes. So my top five choice, uh, first one is Code 46. Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, from 2003, directed by Michael Winterbottom, British film. Actually, this is a low-budget future, which, which makes use of, of limited resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's set in a future where uh, people either live in sort of high-density cities and they have to have authorization to live and work there, or they live on the outside of their cities in sort of wastelands and poverty. Um, and the and it's sort of a dystopian future because it's set in a future where cloning has become quite common. And so you never know when you meet a stranger if you're going to share some DNA with them. Mm. Uh, and because of that, there have to be some quite uh, authoritarian laws, policing. Uh, so the Code 46 of the title is uh, supposed to prohibit and also punish genetic incest between people to try and stop basically humanity inbreeding itself mm. uh, out of existence. So, And it's kind of inspired by uh, Oedipus Rex, 
and uh, Frank Cotter Boyce, the screenwriter, re- does a really good job writing the script that incorporates loads of different references, but makes this quite unusual. It's like a love story, but a tragic love story. Mm. Um, and it's shot in lots of cities in Asia, so uh, Shanghai and Hong Kong, Dubai, Kuala Lumpur, and it uses those locations really well. It's not a big budget film, but you can believe that it's a it's it's a future because you've got this contrast of amazing glitzy skyscrapers and then this kind of desert wasteland that most people live in. Oh, and it's Tim Robbins and uh, Samantha Morton as well. Yes, yeah. So you know it's going to be good <laughs> acting performance from there. Um, I can't say I've not seen it. Um, what about you, Tim? I've seen it. What yeah, did you think? It's in my honourable mentions list. I wrote some notes here. See, I'm ready to go. Yeah, you're not ready to talk into the microphone, though. That's always... Oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, it's a romance film, isn't it? It's a film about love and the, the limits that go, people can place on it. That's always the way I looked at it. Yeah, it, it is, it is a romance film, but, it's, film. It, but it doesn't leave you feeling warm and fuzzy about the future of romance, I think. It really doesn't. <laughs> There's another film that I'm going to talk about in a minute, um, which kind of has parallels to Code 46, so I won't say who, what it is. But, I, I, um, I guess I know what it is. I guess I know what it is. But yeah, so, I mean, this is this thing, in the future, are we... Is our relationship? I mean, that's that is com- loads of films and TV come back to that all the time. Is our relationships going to be constrained? Who we can love, mm. um, and again, that very much speaks to, you know, the issues we have at the moment, where you know, some relationships are unvalued and uh, and, and issues of, of LGBT rights and so forth. So, I, I like that. I like some of the. There's a lot of satirical overtones that kind of point back to things around um, tra- tra- traveling and passports and. Uh, immigration. Absolutely, and, yeah. Um, you know, we're living in a time now where this is all going to be put up for put up for uh, for review with things going on in our country and our neighbours. Yeah, and uh, this has a, this has a good viewpoint on all of that. And it shows what happens where you have a world where everywhere becomes a border. Yeah. You know, at every point you have to show your credentials and not only have the right papers, but literally have the right. It's about you know your biology. Your body has to become part of your citizenship. Exactly, and when we're talking about a time now where we're going into uh, the world of fingerprint scanners, implants, body hacking, all this stuff's going to become more relevant over the next five to ten years, I say, mm. and eye, eye scanning, all sorts of things, you know, th- this kind of uh, hints that they're kind of mistakes or that the kind of controls that governments can have on that. Um, and it's only 2000, it's, it's 2003, and I thought it was a lot more recent than that in my head. I yeah. realised it was that far back in Michael Witterbunt bottoms the oeuvre yeah mm. I saw it at the cinema back then wow <laughs> not that long ago oh my goodness yeah uh, uh, yeah good choice man excellent choice good. so um, Code 46 if you haven't seen it uh, track that down and uh, and worry about a future in which we are all forced to use uh, blue passports um, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 show and so say who we are and it's, I mean this is banging the news at the moment right now this being able to document yourself there's some absolutely horrendous news stories at the moment about there's people who are not, unable to document themselves being regarded as, as you know somehow less citizens um thank you very much joel ready um tim for your number five and then we'll have some music my number five is well i was, I was going to be getting my order of these things right but my number five is andrew nicole's debut film gattaca mm-hmm. um which actually have doesn't, it has some themes that might cross over quite happily from Code 46. Definitely, yeah. Um, in terms of the scientific worlds of, um, you know, uh, 
firstly, I think there's a lot of a lot of films that kind of deal with kind of the now in the sense of why, where we're we going with body, where we're we going with disability, where we're we going with this idea of genetic improvement, control, intelligence, um, putting people into categories. This film deals with all of that in a kind of really, in a really, actually kind of, I think un- unique unique way in one regard I think that um, Andrew Nicole set up this kind of uh, world in which a guy whose name is Vincent which is who's played by Ethan Hawke he's kind of born into a in, into a way which shows that he has problems hmm. for want of a better word I don't want to give too many <laughs> w- away he's, he has what he's called he's called um, an invalid if you remember from the film yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, he works as a cleaner in a space centre um and um, but he doesn't accept his fate. He doesn't accept his position in society, and he wants to come out of that. And he and he he links up with an, um, a DNA broker called, uh, played by Jude Law. Yeah. And the idea is he has the right genes, even though he's been paralysed in an accident. Mm. And he he wants to um, you know have his genes, his blood, his urine samples, and his identity in order to sort of forward his way in society. And it kind of that sets the kind of setup the film and the idea of. Um, you know, making an, an intelligent and a thrilling and a visually exciting film. Andrew Nicole does it and it sets up all of these ideas. He sets up a, 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 side, a side story involving um, Irene, played by Uma Thurman, and she's also been passed over um, because of low scores. Everyone is judged and scored and put into positions. And then this kind of, um, there's a murder that comes into the play yeah. and Alan Arkin plays a detective. I mean, if Alan Arkin comes in, you know it's going to be good. <laughs> exactly. Um, and there's a romance and there's a murder. I don't want to give too much away if you haven't seen the film. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it um, just deals with all this stuff of people being assessed and judged. And again, this is, you know, all these things seem incredibly prescient, you know. At least I, why these films stick around. Is That's what's happening all the time now. What's your score? What's your, what's your rating? What's your, uh, you know, your Uber number? This idea, though, this idea that we have is that everyone was going to live longer Theoretically, everyone's going to look better, be healthier. You know, have a. Um, we've also in a world of clones and genetic improvements and genetic modification. This whole world which you're going to, you know, is actually. Does that mean our world's going to be necessarily better and more fun? Mm. And um, you know, what will happen if kids are rebellious? Kids have their identities taken away because they're being naughty, or mm. you know, it, it poses all of these kinds of questions about the now and the where we're going. So again, very satirical and very and, and a really cool film by Andrew Nicole. I'm a big fan of Andrew Nicole. I think he's really good. Excellent, excellent. Well, we've had um, excellent first choices there. Um, thank you, Feathers and Wings, who's tweeted in with uh, an excellent choice. T H oh, T H X and then a number. I can't remember what the number one is. One one eight. One 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 three eight, which is yeah. George Lucas's trademark sound. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> George <laughs> Lucas's favorite. <laughs> Uh, uh, first film was it his first after or was it after yeah, American it was one Graffiti um, kind of I think it's um, American Zelt wrote because Coppola basically produced a whole bunch of films mm. and, he, and he was 20, 28 years old when he seven twenty eight years old at that time and again what? there's a central there's a central bit in there where the authorities are ch- it's a dystopian future with robot fascist um, cops but they're chasing him and. Basically, there's a budget assigned. This is what I really like. They say there's a budget assigned to capture him, uh, and he just has to outlive, outrun them long enough for that budget to be exceeded. In which case, they'll stop chasing him. Uh, and again, this sort of um, idea of everything having a value, and you know, 
social good being only logical if it has uh, kind of pounds attached to it feels very much in line with our current obsession in the world. It's just sounding very ponderous and pretentious now. Um, <laughs> sorry, everyone. Let's play some music and get away from it. We've had our first choices. Let us know yours. And let's play something uh, that's going to blow the cobwebs away. There we had Suspicious Minds by none other than, of course, the King, Mr. Elvis Presley. Um, and that is taken from the soundtrack to Blade Runner 2049, which would definitely be on my list. For me, Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, is possibly one of the great uh, depictions of dark future and one of the best science fiction films ever made. And when I went to see Blade Runner 2049, I wasn't at all sure it wasn't even better. Um, fantastic films, fantastic, depressing, beautiful, wonderful uh, depictions of a dark future. The only reason I'm not putting them on my list is because I think we've talked about them before and uh, perhaps a little bit obvious. Uh, and that track is from an absolutely fabulous scene, sequence within the film as well, Elvis Presley, and then the rest of the soundtrack's amazing and it looks amazing and it's performed amazingly and it sounds amazing and I think... Um, it's fair to say it is an amazing film and it's home to the funniest scenes funniest scenes in later in 2049 of course All yes stuff in that in that stage room is very very funny yeah, no. <laughs> um which you know you do need a little Deckard, bit of light Deckard belief has comedy yeah, yeah. yeah. it's <laughs> fabulous film but we're not we're not uh, we're not i'm not counting that as one of my top fives yeah, because to Blade Runner in. we've got if a long have, a long list <laughs> um let's go straight into to number four uh, and I'm going to start off, and this is a film I think has been referenced, I think everyone's going to expect me to say it, and I'm going to say it, Children of Men. This is Alphonse Cuaron's... Christmas film. Sorry? Christmas film. It, it is, <laughs> well, it, it came out on Christmas Day in America because of Happy the times. themes of you know, rebirth and hope and so forth that's in it. Those of you that don't know, this is a 2006 film, it's based on a novel by P.D. James, the, the crime writer, um, and it's a story of a future in which... Uh, the human race has become infertile um, and there's no disease wiping us out there's no war there's no pollution there's no alien invasion what there just is is everyone's going to die of old age and that's it then it will we'll shut up and that's it um, and what's happened is without any um, any hope the civilization has crumbled people have given up you know and, and giving in to despair their lives themselves are not truncated it's just this vision of of having no future no children is is horrific and i think one of the things that is makes this film really work for us here in this country is it's very much a british film it's set as a mexican director but it's set in uh, in britain uh, and a recognizable britain a recognizably crumbling britain there's a great um touches that uh, the main character played by Clive Owen is wearing a, a London 2012, a really faded London 2012 Olympics jumper in the film. And this was made you know, long before those Olympics, but the logo had just been unveiled, I think. So it is like a real one, but it looks really old and faded. So it has that connection. We can really feel that this is a person that connects to our time, but it's um, a horrific vision uh, of the future. Um, and yet... Um, I mean, it has some amazing sequences in it. Uh, the, the the action sequences that are all so shot with a single camera and it's got a steady cam are really immersive and terrifying. There's a great kind of urban gun battle that you just feel absolutely, you know, my God, this is what it must be like to be under fire to some small degree, you know, terrifying. Um, and, and yet it has this incredibly, you know, dark view of the future. And yet, and yet, you know, it does have that seed of don't give up hope. You know, Clive Owen is a kind of anti-hero who is given a redemption, given a chance to save the day, perhaps save the human race. 
um, and you know it's it's you know if it, it has that seed of optimism, which I think you know marks out dark future films from ones that are just nihilistic by saying you know you know there is a dark potentially a dark future ahead of us, but we don't have to accept it. So that is my opinion of um, uh, Children of Men. What do you think, guys? Um, it would have been in my five, except I've picked Children of Men in other subsequent shows on many occasions. Uh, I, I, I think my views on this film, if you've watched, listened to the podcast, are very well known. I think it's one of the great visions of, um, of, of hope in a very darkened future. I think um, there's this particular scene where, she, where he's carrying the child I'm not going to give too much away. You already have. <laughs> Where he's carrying a child out of a building after a gun battle. And um, I think I gave you some music as well. I don't mm. know if it'll get played. but oh, I'm not going to play because it it's ten minutes long. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but there's, it's a beautiful John Taverner piece. Mm. Um, uh, it's just this idea of hope. Um, it's filled with visual, visual cues. It takes a lot. It, it, yeah, the way that he does the, the, the close-up shots, from, again, has it has a kind of a, a, a Paul Greengrass kind of mentality mm. to the editing and the, 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 the closeness. And I, I think Clive Owen is just supreme in this film. I and think he's never been better. Michael, that's absolutely true. Michael Caine yeah. as well. Yeah. Michael Payne's sort of ageing raver in this. Yeah. Um, brilliant, brilliant kind of performance. Uh, very kind of contrary to... And just, yeah, just dark. And that's particularly the sequence you talk about with the, with, with the gun battle and the, the pausing of it. And that's the thing that that has that it pauses and then it carries on you know it's like walking through a battle the battle these two massive armies stop because of this possibility of hope and then they just carry on yeah. um it's it's just brilliant you're so born into this also this idea that um you know of this you know this idea i think that um Afonso, Afonso Coram ranges to create which is which is this hopeful world because there are periods in that film where you are feeling that the hope is giving being given up yeah. and at every moment where that happens there's some kind of mm. little snippet of hope there's all these little all these little indications, indications you know yeah. like the, 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 there's loads of in the background just factories spewing out smoke because people have just given up on the idea of caring about the environment and there's just you know rubbish everywhere it's all of that kind of stuff and again all the way through you just get parallels and parallels and parallels with the way we live now and the parallels and you know it's, it's it's fabulous. It's fabulous. No, there's no irony there. There's no and it, there is a little dollop of satire, but really what it is is it's a parable, mm. and it's a really well done parable. There we are, Blake's number four, Children of Men. Apologies that we're not playing John Taverner's marvelous it's soundtrack long, I know. for it, but do look that up because it is. I gave you another one also, brilliant from, uh, from uh, Children of Men, which is also about ten minutes. Long. Yeah, but you know, do do look them up. Do look them up if you haven't uh, heard them because they are fabulous. Um, so there we go, number four. So Joel, are you ready to tell us what's number four on your list? Yes, uh, this I've actually got a documentary for mm-hmm. this slot. It's called Into Eternity, uh, and it's from 2010. It's by a Danish director called Michael Madsen. Not. Michael Madsen of Michael Reservoir Madsen. Dogs. <laughs> that that would be a fascinating yeah, amazing. It's definitely a different Michael Madsen. Um, and it's about a place called Onkolo, which is in Finland. And what that place is, it's an enormous underground structure that's, that it's been under construction for a few decades. It's not going to be finished for at least another few decades. And it's basically, I think, the world's only purpose-built repository for nuclear waste. So Finland gets quite a lot of its energy from nuclear power, and obviously, once they've used it, they need to put it somewhere. So they're built. They're building this giant repository. They're going to put it all in there. Once it's full, they're going to seal it, and then they're going to bury it. And the reason it's about a dark future is because that material is going to be lethally dangerous for the next one hundred thousand years. Mm. 
So if you even get close to it, it's going to start tearing your body apart. And it's a really quite a scary film because it, it says, well, how can, you ma- how can you make sure no one's going to dig it out? How can you make sure no one's going to excavate it? We don't even know what humans, if humans are going to be around, what they're going to look like in 100,000 years. The, how, you can't put a warning sign up. That's going to be a cave painting by that point. It's not going to make any sense. Um, just for some context, the, the pyramids are 5,000 years old. They were 5,000 years old when they were excavated, and people there found signs. They didn't know what they meant. What possibly could have kept them out, out of there? You know, what possibly can stop that curiosity from opening something up? And, and it's our responsibility to do something about it, mm. you know, because we've got this material. It's incredibly dangerous, and yet we need to put it somewhere. That's fascinating. It is fascinating. Really fascinating. And they, they go through all these options of how, you know, can you give someone a sort of sensory experience they get there that makes it an unpleasant place to be, so they just want to leave? You know, it really gets down to what is the thing like that we're... spoons. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What is the thing that we're going to share with those people? You know, and and because the thing is, whatever future we go to, whatever happens, that material is going to be there. Mm. We're going to have to address it. That is really fascinating. I think I read something about this time, and they were they they, they were thinking of like sculptures uh, yeah. that look kind of terrifying. You know, this idea of you know you see kind of Planet of the Apes, and there's kind of like the Forbidden Zone, and it is literally that's what we're going to have. That's a really really great one. So, what's the name of the film again? It's called Into Eternity. Into Eternity. Yeah. It's shot really nicely. It's very creepy. Uh, you know, all these dark, seemingly endless tunnels underground. It looks it's like, like you've stepped into a cube. When you look at some of the images, yeah. it does feel like you've stepped into something out of a Ken Adams step from a, from a Doctor Strange level or something. <laughs> stra- uh, you know, all these kind of big, long, just sort of dim, corridors filled rooms. with poison. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, I really look uh, like the look of that. I'm going to try and uh, dig that one out over the weekend. I, I haven't seen it either. And there's, there's a, but there's a line from it which which says a lot, maybe about what we're saying. That the danger will still be present in your time as it is in ours. Mm. Um, yeah, and that's, a, that's a lot to say about you know us as a civilization that we're prepared to dump um, deadly problems on 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 people that we cannot even begin to comprehend uh, what their lives are going to be like. Um, yeah, what a. What a terrible species we are. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's go on. Um, we've, we've got a lot to get through. So, Tim, your number, th- number four. Uh, my number four is Silent Running. Um, oh. Talking of, uh, you know, because basically humanity gives up on Earth at one point, and that's what uh, uh, this film, this Trumbull's film, sort of deals with. Mm. Um, it's one of my favourite films. I think it might have been mentioned in the five before, so I, I yeah. am, if I'm breaking convention here, I, I'm sorry. Um, we'll let you off on that one. It's okay. This film, you know, means a lot to me on a personal level. Um, Okay, so basically, um, everything about this film is a is a, is still relevant to, and it's 1972, so it's, it's kind of at the time this was kind of a film which was at the vanguard of talk, pointing out about how we save our forests, how we save our gr- greenery, how we look after our environment, and all that kind of stuff. And this film um, is still relevant, ever more relevant now, when we live in a world where even our leaders are telling us about uh, things about global warming not being true and mm. the end of the world you know being in a very different place um so i love this film for for for, for the for the anti-hero known as freeman lal um and his three accomplices huey dewey and louie who look after these lovely green hat lovely they're around the rings of saturn they have these orbs that contain plant life and rabbits and squirrels and 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 they're sort of they're geodesic nerd, nerd, nerd domes and then one day there's an order given to to end them and blow them up 
And Freeman Lau says, no, I am not blowing up my geodesic domes. I'm not, I'm not putting the end, I'm not ending humanity in that way or ending what is part of the earth. And, mm-hmm. and it's kind of that battle. And it's that the sort of juxtaposition between man's deadliness and man's sort of fateful nature and this one anti-hero that it kind of forms the base of this film. And then, of course, our favorite robot characters. <laughs> and the sort of um, the film actually, you know, if you, every time I watch the film, I'm bawling with tears. Um, it's one of the, it's one of those classic trademark Tim bawling with tears. <laughs> Tim sees more in uh, Tim sees more humanity in robots than in humans again. Well, that's um, certainly part of the message, isn't it, of the film? Is yeah. you know, we've lost lost touch of um, of kind of of our connection to nature and humanity it's, or reality, uh, biology. And the special effects are, are awesome. Mm. You can tell it, uh, it has its, you know, it's, it's, it's Trumbull. You know, he, he he does set up these worlds and these and these these, these, fu- these futuristic worlds and does the kind of uh, a lot of this. There's a lot of synergy to 2001 in the kind of uh, special effects and the mm-hmm. the use of uh, in the use of space and so modeling. Those of you who don't know, Douglas Trumbull did the special effects for 2001, and this yeah. was, I think, one of I think he only directed this film. Is it the only one he directed? Uh, and then he went mm. off to make um, design roller coasters. Uh, which I think would be amazing and of course he, he did consult on uh, future films of uh, the world of uh, Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. and uh, future st- and the motion Star Trek the motion picture and Close Encounters and so on and so forth you know and that there's, his uh, his influence lives on mm-hmm. but um, yeah and Blade Runner and yeah <coughs> his influence is rather important but this is such a personal film to, to me on a, on, a, on, a, on a level and um, yeah silent well, running a silent running and an iconic sequence with Joan Baez. I haven't been able to play the music for that. I'm afraid I don't have it, Tim. Um, so apologies for that. But what we will do is we'll play something from a Trimble influenced, um, Trimble influenced uh, film that's also been mentioned. So uh, have a listen to this because this is you know, something special too. There we have uh, "Tears in Rain" by Vangelis. Of course, from the Blade Runner soundtrack. That's uh, Tears in Rain from uh, Tim there as well, (laughs) getting very emotional. Um, You're listening to the Screen Brum Show here on Brum Radio, where we're talking dark futures. Let us know your dark futures. Hello, Feathers and Wings, who's agreed with Tim about silent running, running, um, saying it's a brilliant choice. And also hello to Ryuza. I hope we pronounced that right, who has merely tweeted delicatessen and a heart. Delicatessen um, being the, the sort of precursor to, I think that came out before the City of Lost Children, but similar kind of um, sort of slightly absurdist French post-apocalyptic. Fantastic. So thank you very much for those tweets. And we're going to go straight into our number three choices now for our dark futures. And as I'm flicking the pages over, because I realised I'd forgotten which one I said was going to be number three on my list. That's terrible. Minority Report. So if I've if I've insulted Steven Spielberg fans with my um, my basic loathing of Ready Player One, um, I'm going to try and claw it back now with Minority Report, which for me is the best film he's certainly done. He hasn't I personally don't think he's done a better film since then, and I mm. certainly think it's one of his better um, one of his best science fiction films. Um, and this is kind of also when, you know, Steven Spielberg was slightly more cynical, I think. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of his films, as Tim said, they're very heroic. I think there's a way of looking at this film and saying it's actually, you know, th- there's the, the ending is controversial, which is hard to say without spoiling it for people. But the ending is controversial, uh, what your perception of it is, whether it's incredibly uplifting or actually incredibly dark. Um, but this is a film about um, a dark future in which 
people are kind of um, there's something called pre-crime, which is this uh, ability to detect criminals before they have actually committed the crime and uh, enact on them. Accordingly, Tom Cruise plays a police officer who is tasked to take down murderers before they have murdered. And again, you know, we can see this a lot with with all this algorithm discussions that we're having at the moment with fake news and all that kind of stuff about if you know so much about people and you start presenting them with, you know, with adverts and news and information that's that's filtered around, you know, what you know about them, you can almost predict their behaviour. I think there's a lot to be said in this film about uh, how you know how that has manifested itself in our society now when steven spielberg made it he consulted a lot of kind of um, futurologists i think experts about what the future might look like so i think it looks very convincing as well you know that it's a kind of combination of the grimy and the shiny um, where often films are one or the other um and there's a, a great kind of um as i say sort of slightly kind of dark and well very dark undertone of the whole thing which is quite unlike uh, Steven Spielberg and how he normally addresses these things. Um, so for me, um, it is yeah, I think it's right up there with a great perception of a dark future. Tim, it was my number three as well. Oh. <laughs> ruined it. Uh, not ruined it at all. Um, I will echo your uh, opinions on Spielberg here and how it's not as here. It's not as her- It's not doesn't follow the theme of heroic convention. Mm. At that time, Spielberg was really on a Kubrick kick after doing AI. This film has so much Kubrickism in it, um, in terms of the set design, in terms of the, the sort of the feel of the film. Um, I would also say it's a Philip K. Dick uh, adaptation, so it fully fills into a dystopian world. Um, it also has a, um, it also has a, has a great sub performance, uh, great performances by Max von Sydow and Colin Farrell. Mm-hmm. I think there's a there's a particular scene I love with spiders, which again. Uh, that does fit into a Spielbergian universe, where but it not spoiled, but not spiders as you come to expect. And I think the big credit goes to Tom Cruise. I think that what he does very, very well is he's able to inhabit the world of an action hero and put real emotion into his performance. He's very, very good in this. He is. Um, Hmm? There's lots of running. He's very good at running in films. Cruise, right? Everybody yeah. runs, right? He <laughs> runs. I don't think there are, there are many more action heroes that run as well as Tom Cruise. Yeah. Tom Cruise likes to run and get hit by things as well. <laughs> have you ever seen um, that? Have you seen uh, that um, sequence from? I think it's it's either um, one of the um, Mission Impossible's or the Mummy, where he is kind of acting of being thrown around in a plane, uh, and the original footage has got leaked onto YouTube of him. Um, of just how full-throated he is in this, even yeah. though he's essentially just sort of throwing himself around, just you can hear how much he's putting into that. It really is a full-throated actor, possibly not the greatest, you know, character actor of our of our time, but he he gives it all. I I, I yeah, I think Tom Cruise, you know, for, for, for when he, you know, for all you might say about him, he does give his all in everything that he does. You know, he's a he's a he's a full-throated. Uh, performer and one of my other and that's why he lends himself to the big screen so well and he does and, he, and as you say this is possibly one of his his greatest performances yeah so a view of the future and i say that uh, sequence with the spiders that you talk about is not as terrifying as it sounds but it is this idea again it ties into this idea of privacy that we have now and monitoring you know i think that back when this film was made or or film similarly if you if you if, if you'd said to people the amount of things that we would be quite happily sharing posting on the internet and, and telling random people about our lives they'd be amazed mm. uh, about perceptions of, of privacy and that's what this film again addresses this idea that you know 
we can tell what you're going to do and people will kind of go along with that. I will go back though to you. You know, you talked about the criticism of Ready Player One for its being very surface and being, you know, the. the you I didn't talk about the criticism. I gave the you criticism. You gave criticism. I think where Spielberg is at his best um, is when he does, where the effects are. He's very good at making effects seamless. Yeah. You know, where other directors with big budgets, you know, want to show the special effects? Spielberg doesn't. He will show the special effects, but he doesn't go out of his way to tell you to, oh, look at these effects, look mm. how feels, wow they're... It feels like a lived-in world. Yeah, and world. this film just does that. It's it's all about story and character. It's a crime story at its heart, and that's the thing that Spielberg wants to show. Mm-hmm. He wants to force frightness, of course, and show, show a future, which is very, res- very pre- prevalent on now. And you, the other mention is Samantha Morton's character, Agatha, and that kind of... that she's kind of set in this water world where she predicts the future, and he, she's the one who tells Tom Cruise to be careful and... Mm. And, and she, you know, this this called Agatha, who's, yeah, and I don't know if that's a hint to Agatha Christie. I always thought that it yes. might be. Her and the other two siblings are named after Dashiell Hammett and Thank the other you. crime writer as well. Oh, know. there you go. Which is clever. And again, um, another another nod should go to Janusz Kaminski, who every time you see, it, his, you know, every, in every film since Schindler's List, Janusz Kaminski's cinematography is peerless. Mm. Uh, he's just uh, has a way of getting shots out and ca- and the way he forms worlds with, with Spielberg. Yeah, I think I think it's a great choice, and I will say that I agree with you almost that it is possibly his best film since two thousand and two, possibly. But yeah, um, I might challenge you. But um, but uh, yeah, I, it is up there in the top three since that time. Yeah. Fantastic. Oops. There you me. go. Yeah. I didn't know you were going to pick Minority Port, so uh, that's. Uh, yeah. I share. I share in your number three there. So that's your number three as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can uh, we can move straight to Joel. Have you got a number three, <laughs> or have you told us your number three? I, I have. No, this is my number three. It actually, leads very nicely onto it because I've chosen AI, artificial intelligence. Oh. <laughs> yeah, another Spielberg film. He features quite heavily. In, this um, was. I think this, they were. His two straight after each other, actually. I think. Were they? I think they were very similar time. Yeah. It was just. It was before AI came before. Yeah. yeah. AI was originally um, a. Um, Stanley Kubrick was That's going right. to make it, and it was kind of a labour of love, wasn't it, for for Spielberg yeah. to finish it? Yeah. So Spielberg picked it up after Kubrick, because Kubrick died in ninety nine two thousand. Mm. Uh, this this all this whole choice these top fives it says a lot that Spielberg is focused field is featured. Three times or four yeah. times in the, in our fifteen films. <laughs> what does that say yeah. about that influence of that guy? Okay. Crazy. Isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, Joel. Tell us. Tell us why you like this film. Well, I like it because obviously there's loads of great uh, dark future films about killer robots, where robots are the threat, and this film takes the side of the robots, uh, yeah. which I find quite interesting because it's set in a world which is kind of hopeless. The ice caps have melted, coastal cities have gone underwater, but life is kind of continuing. And uh, it's about, uh, there's a booming uh, sort of humanoid robot industry. And it's about the robot makers thinking, we've, we've, done, we've made robots to do everything that humans do except for love. So can we make a robot that feels love? And that feels like a very schmaltzy, you know, classic Spielberg thing. And, but actually it's, it introduces this, you know, robot in the form of, 11, of an 11-year-old boy mm. programmed to love unconditionally who's quite innocent and naive put into a quite a horrible world and it's about him realizing how really awful the future is and kind of coming to terms with it and i think actually because he goes to this flesh what's called a flesh fair where robots are torn apart very violently as as a, a spectacle of entertainment because pe- i think people who can't afford the robots come to hate them um which is part of the history of this of this future world and brendan gleason plays the sort of ringmaster and he 
he what he criticizes about the robots he says he says you you'll be moved by this and you'll you'll be very impressed by this but it all comes apart if you if you tear at them and he says that you can just destroy them like that and i i read that as um Spielberg responding to people who criticize his films for being very artificial and being seeming very sweet, but actually being very artificial and mm. you know deliberately constructed. And people like me, basically. <laughs> yeah, I think it comes back to your criticisms of Ready Player One. He he kind of says, "Well, we in a world so horrible, of course we need artificiality. Of course we need storytelling. It's the only thing. If you don't have that, then you've got a really hopeless future." You know, he, but he it kind of has its cake and eats it in a way because it says the world is awful and dystopian but you need to you need to keep on there is love in there yeah Uh, let's play a clip from it this is um uh the john hurt character william Hurt. william hurt i knew that (laughs) that would be a different take on them (laughs) yeah (laughs) william hurt's character introducing uh his idea for love robots oh no that sounds awful i mean (laughs) robots that are capable to create an artificial being has been the dream of man since the birth of science not merely the beginning of the modern age, when our forebears astonished the world with the first thinking machines, primitive monsters that could play chess. <laughs> How far we have come. The artificial being is a reality, a perfect simulacrum, articulated in limb, articulate in speech, and not lacking in human response. And even pay memory response. (laughs) How did that make you feel? Angry? Shocked? I don't understand. What did I do to your feelings? You did it to my hand. I. There's the rub. Undress. At Cybertronics of New Jersey, artificial being has reached its highest form universally adopted mecca the basis for hundreds of models serving the human race in all the multiplicity of daily life that's far enough but we have no reason to congratulate ourselves we are rightly proud of it but what does it amount to sheila open sensory toy with intelligent behavioral circuits using neuron sequencing technology as old as I am. I believe that my work on mapping the impulse pathways in a single neuron can enable us to construct a mecca of a qualitatively different order. I propose that we build a robot who can love. Alexa, show me a robot that can love. Um, there we are. That was a clip from AI. Eva. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, is, is it a terrifying future that awaits us if we allow Siri to have too much control? Who knows? Who knows? Maybe Siri will start falling in love with us. Addressed brilliantly in um, her, of course, um, where... 
Uh, Phoenix falls in love with uh, an AI. Um, Scarlett Johansson. Voiced mm. by Scarlett Johansson. Originally Which, voiced by Samantha, Samantha Morton. Morton who gets again another feature. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. All right, so what did, why did they change they just it? replaced it. I guess she wasn't a big enough star. Um, I think it had everything to do with that. Oh, that is devastating. Well, let's try and f- track down the original footage of that, because I think that would yeah. be great. Um, we're going to play some more music now, uh, and then we're going to be back with our number two and number one countdowns for our dark future films. This uh, track here is a, a jolly one taken from uh, one of the films we've already discussed. Uh, the film in question is Gattaca. The title is Noaji, I think. Noajis, I don't know. Uh, and it's Django Reinhardt. <laughs> As I was putting together the playlist for today's show, I did discover quite a lot of um, of jazz featured in dark future films, which I think possibly is a telling thing. I don't know. Is it jazz tells you a lot about jazz musicians? The <laughs> uh, soundtrack knowing of a lot of them. Um, so that was um, my choice for. Um, oh, sorry, that was uh, that was from the soundtrack to Gattaca. Um, before we do go into our final uh, rundown here, um, we want to talk to Joel about some events that you do. So, Joel, as well as a filmmaker, you are a film shower. Yes. Yeah. So, so tell uh, us a little bit about You've got something coming up. Yeah, so I run a regular short film night at Artifact in Sturchley. Um, What's that, Artifact? Yeah, so Artifact is like an arts cafe. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a cafe, but also an arts space. So it's very nice. They do lots of different arts events. And I run a regular short film night there called Neighbourhood. And uh, and we have an event coming up. And the next event is on the 2nd of May, which is a Wednesday. Um, and this is going to be animated shorts. So we're showing about 14 or 15 short films from all around the world, all animated. Lots of different techniques and styles and genres and everything. Um, it's pay what you feel on the door. We take donations. All the money that we get will go to the Hope Projects, which is a... Um, a Birmingham charity that basically help with housing and other needs for destitute asylum seekers in Birmingham in the black country. Wow. So any money we get will uh, will go there. Um, there's going to be a bar, there's going to be snacks, and the films are really, really uh, great. I always think that with a short film night, everyone is going to have one film they love and one film they hate, and it'll be different for everyone. So it's great to have stay around and have a chat about them afterwards and have a big fight about which one was the best. <laughs> uh, fighting is not necessary. Um, <laughs> so have, that, that sounds great. So do you how, have a link to this, uh, mm. Joel? Um, so if you're on Twitter, go to at NBHoodShorts, um, and all the information will be on there. Um, I'll be tweeting about it on my timeline as well. Uh, and if you go to Facebook, search Animated Shorts, and the event page will be there, so you can follow all the information on there, and it will have all the details. Okay, and remind us again of the the time and place so it's Wednesday the 2nd of May the films are going to start at 8pm and it's at Artifact which is on Pershaw Road in Sturchley just close to Bourneville Station fantastic they sound absolutely wonderful so I shall definitely do my best to get along to that Joel mm, um, and it also sounds like an extremely good cause that's yeah. being supported as well so that is great okay thank you very much for that um, let's go straight on to discussing the dark and depressing Future. Let's move away from the dark and depressing present and dark and depressing future with the number two films on our list. Now, I'm surprised this one hasn't been mentioned already. Um, it's possibly perhaps because it's a bit obvious, but I am still going to say it because it is the daddy of them all, if you like, and it is 1927's Metropolis, mm. Fritz Lang's film. Um, I discovered um, recently it was the first film to be in- inscribed on UNESCO's... Um, Movies of the World Register. That's like a, the first kind of cornerstone 
of culture. Um, those of you that haven't seen the film, you've had 90 years, so, um, <laughs> you know, not great. Um, it is, um, it's it's an amazing piece of um, design, if nothing else. Um, Fritz Lang, uh, obviously a fantastic um, impressionistic filmmaker. It's a, a, um, a very sort of art deco uh, design to the extent where there's a lot. Of, it has had a lot of influence on architecture. You know, there's not many films that can say that it's actually influenced the way that, that that cities have been constructed. It's a futuristic city nightmare where the people are forced to work like kind of ants in a machine to keep this giant mechanism going and to slightly venerate um, a robotic overlord which you know let's say 90 years ago you know let's you know it's not entirely different when you see yourself you know commuting into work in the center of a city (laughs) um, of a Monday morning staring at your mobile phone that's just telling you what to think and do so i mean it's it's obviously been hugely influential it has got it was um there was a an odd version in the 90s um where a number of the scene sequences were ex- were, were not are no longer in existence and some of them were kind of reconstructed from stills and various things with a soundtrack by georgia Moroder and with pat Bennett, pat benatar singing and i was going to play some of that and i think i still might so don't <laughs> uh, don't slag it off um but yeah <laughs> metropolis if you haven't seen that film strongly recommended because you will see the influence around you still as i say in the buildings and also in this kind of perception of a dark future where we are all kind of enslaved by uh, technology and the requirement to all you know do our part to keep this huge machine going which is not necessarily good for us so that is blake's number two 1927's fritz lang directed metropolis any thoughts gentlemen i saw metropolis recently the electric actually because they screened it with their cinematic time machine Mm. program and it looks amazing on the big screen Mm. i mean it it was really a thing to see i I didn't. I appreciated it, uh, the design of it, more than I was really especially moved or engaged by mm. it. I, I saw that weird one uh, with the modern music when, mm. as a kid on VHS, uh, and, that, and it was much better than that. <laughs> um, but yeah, the design of it is incredible. You have to see it just because of the influence that it's had, yeah. especially in sci fi, but across all cinema, really. Yeah. But um, the scariest thing about it, I found in terms of the future, is how it has that. There's all the workers who are underground toiling away to keep the city going. And just at several points through the film, they're just so easily swayed by someone who just stands up and rouses them at, for one cause or another. And, and it just, I was just, a bit like, oh God, is that the future that we've got? Well, I mean, yeah, that's, maybe it is. yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it was, this was only a few years before the rise of fascism mm. um, in Germany. And of course, you know, I don't think, I don't think you have to look too hard to see populist um, features in our current uh, society who can, persuade people very easily to do things that perhaps aren't in their best interests mm. discuss yeah I, I love how that film actually does that is it is a kind of it is a kind of a alert to the idea of that you know humans are lemmings and humans follow and humans follow the leader and it's kind of the there's a lot of the, the repetitive no movements of machinery and cogs and workers and mm. it, it reminds me of um if you ever watch uh, soviet films from the 1930s you know it has there are similar they're clearly influenced by fritz land's metropolis because mm. this idea that you are workers and you do these things to serve and put for, and follow follow a purpose you know it it is a forerunner to 
fascism. It is a forerunner to the 1930s, and it's a forerunner to much cinema that's ever followed since. Mm. But it is still a parable about now. Mm. I've said the word parable too much. It is, it is about now as well, and we are so easily led and uh, believe things and are told things and take it as truth and gospel. And mm. Yeah. It's quite stu- it's quite disturbing, really, when you think about it. That in 1927, that, that still rings true. In yeah, we haven't learned 90 years. <laughs> we haven't on. learned too much. No, no. From that, but don't worry, you only get the truth from the Screen Brum show. This is not fake news. Um, I'm going to play some music from it. I'm going to do that. Well, the Mar- you're going to go properly, Maroda. I'm going to go full. You never Marauder. go. You never go full Maroda, but I'm doing it. This is from the not the original um, soundtrack, never of course. Ending Sorry. Uh, here we go. This is uh, this track is called Machines. Excellent. Just check it out. Definitely what Fritz Lang would have wanted. That's Giorgio Moroder's uh, soundtrack for the 80s re-release of Metropolis. So, here we are on Screen Brum talking about the dark future. Dark futures. And we're running through our top fives. Let us know what yours are at Screen Brum, please. Thank you for your contributions so far. So, we're now on the, uh, the, the penultimate run. Of our top five. So, um, Joel, would you like to tell us your number two? Sure, yeah. Mine is a, a short film. It's, it's about 20 minutes, or just under that, from 2015. It's called World of Tomorrow. Uh, animated film by Don Hertzfeld, mm. renowned American animator who uses stick figures um, uh, in his animation. Uh, so the concept of the film is that there's a little girl called Emily who is actually voiced by Don Hertzfeld's niece, who was four years old when they filmed it. And she is contacted by someone from 227 years into the future who actually is a clone of Emily mm. because in the future they figured out a way within Emily's lifetime that people can clone themselves so they can effectively live forever because they just pass their consciousness down from one clone to the next generationally. And so this clone, future Emily, basically brings young girl Emily into the future and shows her what the future looks like. And they have this amazing cloning technology. They've, there is time travel, although they haven't quite mastered it, but it exists. And you s- gradually come to realise that despite all these innovations, the future is a horrific place. People are miserable. They've lost hope. And actually, as technology has advanced, the humans have sort of lost their emotional and intellectual capacity to be happy or find any meaning in the world. And the fear of death is very prominent in the film. And there's a, it packs a lot in, mm. <laughs> considering it's a short. Yeah. It's really funny. It's very absurdist humour, but also quite disturbing. You get all these views of, you know, time travel exists, but then people start doing um, budget time travel that doesn't work properly, and so they end up in the wrong place or the wrong time. Because, actually, all this technology, which is amazing, is only really accessible to people who can afford it, which is very few people yeah. in the future as, as it is now. And... Um, uh, but there is a bit of hope in it. Basically, at the end, it's got this quite profound message. This future version of this girl says to young Emily, basically, the future is going to be awful. And for that reason, you need to be happy now. You need to celebrate now mm. because um, because that's all you have. And, and if there's, there's no reason to stop you from celebrating it. So it ends on this little, little morsel of hope amidst all the carnage and violence. That sounds fantastic. I, can't, I must admit, not heard of that at all. It's very short, isn't it? It's like 20 minutes long. Yeah, yeah, if that. And actually, there's, yeah. a, there's a new sequel that's going to be playing at Flatpak Film Festival. Wow. Um, I forget which event. There's one of the short film events. So there's a, there's a part two to World of Tomorrow, which the title is... The Day After Tomorrow. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would have been a good one. Then the title is uh, The Burden of Other People's Thoughts. Mm. 
I love the sound of that. That's I haven't seen it. I remember it got nominated for a Best Short, didn't it? The Oscars as well. Oh, did it? Yeah. Um, yeah, Don Hertzfield's got a lot of reputation based on that film, hasn't he? Mm. And I, I, I haven't seen it. Mm. I, know you, I really want to go and see it. 17 minutes of... Of dark misery. Yeah. <laughs> with a happy ending-ish. Um, well, that's a, probably a good a good message for us all. You know, we don't know what the future's going to hold. We've been we've been in this studio now for uh, an hour and a half. We don't know what's happened in the news. And frankly, the way the news is going at the moment, who knows what the future's going to be like um, when we leave? You were just talking about Pontypool, weren't you? Yeah. And the the plot line for that film could echo what's going on in our world right now. I don't you know, know. The world could have ended whilst we were sitting in the studio. We could go out of our studio, and there's a wasteland. Not the wasteland we walk out into, but a different wasteland. <laughs> okay, well that's um, mm. th- that's uh, that's a nice image. Let us know. Let us know if the world has ended. Yeah, uh, tweet in now. Well, Twitter's gone down. <laughs> oh no, no! That really is the end of the world. If the apocalypse has happened, or indeed if we've just entered into a dystopian phase, let us know. Um, so thank you very much for that. Number two from Joel Ray, uh, Tim. Number two from you. So, uh, talking of worlds that have gone completely to hell, my number two is Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> I just thought you were, I just thought it was almost like you were lining up for me to talk about. Uh, okay, well, this is this is a fabulous film. I, I I was taken by this idea that when Tom Hardy was taking over as this Mad Max character, was supposed to believe that a Mad Max character was coming into a world that was like thirty years on from Mel Gibson's, but he kind of hasn't aged and hasn't really got any older but he's become more bonkers and more worldwide and you know we find him eating a lizard at the start of the film and getting captured um and he he doesn't say a lot tom hardy but he is if everyone if anyone was going to be mad max in a world you'd want it to be tom hardy <laughs> but then you realize that this film is actually about a desperation of humanity and the resources of the world are being taken up by bad people and there's there's slavery and there are um you know Men who dry, who who play guitars, heavy metal guitars, on the back of uh, Tom uh, on, on the back of really weird looking vehicles. I presume it's you a, approve of that. Hmm? I, I presume you approve of that. I do approve of that. And then people with uh, weird weird piercings and uh, you know. Um, but actually, what this film is about is about a smidgen of hope. And um, at the heart of this film is uh, Charlize Theron's character. Um, who's terrific. Um, so she plays a character called Imperator Furiosa, and her job is um, she's help. She's basically about to make a risky bid for freedom, for want of a better word, along with basically um, five formerly captive young wives. Um, it, and it's a film about that as much as it's a film about Max. Max actually comes along and helps along for the ride, and it's a two-hour basically action sequence yeah, for want a, of a better it's word a chase. It's, it's a chase it's sequence. a two hour car chase it's a two hour car chase as lo- and, 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 and boy does it just keep going and keep, keep driving along and it's relentless and it's, and it's hard and it's edgy and it's beautifully realised George Miller's just done something pretty incredible by reviving Mad Max as a concept and just putting a whole bunch of these really well written well perceived characters and at the heart of it is Charlize Theron's eyes you know, I talk about eyes a lot in films. Her eyes in this film are the, whole, are the, are the emotional forefront of this film. She, her, she, it's, her, it's her battle that we invest in. It's her belief that we invest in. And um, it, the idea ultimately is how we, but we want these characters to sort of beat back and win over the, the other characters who are kind of bringing the downfall and destruction of the world. 
Um, and that's why. And, and there's a lot in that about um, gender as well, isn't it? I mean, Huge it's, this, it's these awful, you know, men um, and the women who, you know, are are kind of beaten around by the system that these men produce, uh, introduce uh, and rebel against it. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot of parallels with with everything that we're seeing. And, and again, you can put it straight up to me too already in there. You know, the, what's important in this film is that Mad Max does not save these women. These women save themselves. Yep. Um, and that's obviously, you know, really important part of it. I mean, it's, yeah, again, as you say, it's very much a film about today. I mean, George Miller was inspired by, he was a an A&E doctor in Australia when he originally made the first Mad Max film was inspired by... He basically used to spend his his time patching up the victims of car crash, uh, car crash you know, accidents, and seeing kind of the the danger of this kind of um, veneration of the motor car and all that kind of stuff. So again, it was very much an original reference to our dystopian present that he was talking about in Mad Max. And again, I feel that's what he does in this film as well. Um, Joel, what do you think? Have you? I take it you've seen it. Everyone's seen it. Right? I've, I've seen it four times in the cinema, <laughs> uh, including the black and chrome version. Oh, you saw the Black and Co. Yeah. in the cinema? Yeah, okay, I um, didn't. I, I love Fury Road. I think it's, it's one of the great action films. Uh, I think it's fantastic. And I love how it comes after all the other Mad Max films because you can trace a sort of timeline can, of, yeah. of, of how the world goes to hell and then sort of comes back in, in this sort of skewed version. The aesthetic is fantastic. The, every character and every prop seems to have a whole history behind it. You can see how this is a world that's taken our world and then repurposed everything to mm. be this sort of a, a, a civilization which to us seems completely mad. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the, the incredible nerve of having him with essentially a sort of trowel on his face um, for half of this film is brilliant, I think, of just this idea of, you know, making sure that we know this is not a different, you know, this is this is a potential future, this is what happens, you know, directly connected to us now. It's, yeah, it's... But it's a film. It's a film of heart as well as muscle. Right. I always think, and um, you know, all the women actually, not just. I think I'd, I'd give a disservice to all the other women that, that there's real power in all of their performances mm. as well. And you just believe in it, and you're like, you're, yeah. Yeah. you know, when Charlize Theron knows that she's potentially going to die, you know, you you get caught up in that emotion as well. It's 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 badass. Mm, it's a great film, and it, and and. and, and Excellent choice, I would say, Tim, for number two. Thank you. So that is Tim's uh, penultimate choice for dark future films. Uh, and we're going to be back with our final one. Each of us has selected one film of the dark future. Let us know what yours are at Scream Brum. And let's have some more music. There you go. We're trying to re- reintroduce a little bit of joy and hope there with a with a, uh, a couple of brilliant tracks, 30th Century Man by Scott Walker, which is not from a post-apocalyptic film or a dystopian film per se. It's from The Life Aquatic, that one. But nonetheless, obviously, it references the future. And we followed that up with Moon River, which is, of course, um, you know, of course, it's from Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is not a, uh, not a dark future film, but it was also used in the aforementioned Minority Report. So that is where... We're going with those. I was thinking if you're going to go into, the, into a dark future, Scott Walker's a good person to be singing to you about mm. dark futures. I think <laughs> yeah. his, his voice lends itself well to melancholy. Yeah. Well, certainly if you hear some of his um, more recent work, oh, yeah. um, you know, you're, you're, you're definitely in a kind of dystopian um, world there. Put those headphones on, listen to a bit of Scott Walker and <laughs> abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Um, we're not abandoning <laughs> hope. We are 
reliably informed uh, via Twitter that the world is still running away, running around nicely. That's, that's good. That's good to um, know. Yeah. So thank you um, for letting <laughs> us know about that. The world is still going. Some other um, tweets. Uh, hello, Red Bezel. Red Bezel has suggested a lighter take on the dark future. I'm not sure I would agree. This is light, but it's Wally. Wally was certainly one of my... Ooh, excuse me, Tim. Uh, number one choice. I apologise for that noise. Um, that was Tim headbutting the microphone. Um, the, um, yeah, the, Wally, um, fantastic animated film. And again, a kind of a view of humanity who's just become entirely... Um, Fat. Fat, but, you know, just, just, just everything is done for us. Our, we've got our entertainment, everything on tap. Um, and we just sit there and we don't... We just sit and absorb it all and just become fat, useless blobs. Uh, and again, not an entirely um, you know, alien uh, way of looking at the world right now, I would say. Um, so, yeah, a good choice there, Red Bezel. But we are going through our number one um, ones. Before we do, any more, another little rundown of some other contribution. Hello, Aid Spink. Aid has suggested Logan's Run. Yes. Fantastic. Certainly yes, in yes, my yes. list. Um, Soylent Green. a synth. Soylent Green, again, the only reason that I've not mentioned that is because I, I always do. Um, but Soylent Green, to me, is one of the great Dark Future choices. So very much agree with you on that one, Aid. Uh, the Running Man? Yeah, okay. The Running Man, which is uh, you know one of one of Schwarzenegger's 80s high not, points. I wouldn't put it in the, in the pantheon of Spielberg, uh, sorry, the Schwarzenegger films, but uh, it is a lot of fun. Mm. It's got Mick Fleetwood in it. Mick Fleetwood, it comes to the rescue, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah, it's, um, nice, it's a nice parable and game shows, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and, and again, other things. And I do love the. There's this. Uh, have you ever go to the Library of Birmingham? You know, they, you as you go out of the Library of Birmingham, they've got the little, they've got the barriers that uh, these little red barriers that if you take a book out, it makes an, a noise. Mm. And you know the scenes where it, you know if you try and escape from the prison, your head gets blown off. <laughs> I, every time I walk past these little red things, <laughs> I, I say to my girlfriend, it "Just this just reminds me of the Running Man." Every time I pass that, I think if you're going to walk out with a book. That the that Library of Birmingham are going to take your head off. Okay. Mm. Um, for Just for uh, <laughs> legal purposes, that definitely does not happen. Um, the, not yet. The, the, <laughs> the Birmingham Library is a lovely place to visit, <laughs> and it is not a depiction of the dark future. But now, next time you see them, you will think that. Oh, dear. Well, well anyway, as long as you're visiting the library, uh, that's important. That is important, yeah. Too. Um, well, should we do some... Um, some other quick honourable mentions before we do oh, honourable ones. I have so ones. many. Yeah, I mean, I Wally was certainly one of mine. The Road yes. was one of mine. Uh, That's a happy film. <laughs> it is a happy film. John John Hillman does 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 depressing as good as any director out there, it's, doesn't it's, he? You know? it's, Hillcoat, sorry, John it, Hillcoat. It's yeah, it's a dark book. Another one, um, The Age of Stupid. I don't know if either of you have seen yeah, this. This is a uh, film with Pete Postlethwaite, uh, and, it, and it reminded me when you talked about um, the animated film you referenced earlier, which was, um, you know, it's it's him as a future historian commenting on why on earth us in our era now did not do anything to to stop climate change destroying the world and he's just referencing you know all these these kind of documents from today and telling us why on earth did they not um another um uh, tom cruise high point for me which uh, i don't know if anyone else will mention is oblivion yeah um which is a great odd science fiction film and again a really good it's the cruise sci-fi era, as I call it. Yeah, yeah. he was he was great. He's um, pretty good in that. So yes, um, those are my any other 
Any other ones before we get into our Yeah, I got final quite a choice? few. I was going to mention Code 46. <laughs> um, uh, Luke Besson's first film, La Dernier Combat, mm. um, which I think is a really great film. I, I love there's no dialogue in it. It's mm. it doesn't pre it doesn't say how the world's ended, but um our hero is called the man. He sets up a t- he, you know, he he gets um done he gets done unto uh, by a gang very reminds me of Mad Max actually this film a little bit and then and then he he, he he's um confronted by a guy called the brute played by Jean Reno. Mm. <laughs> Jean Reno turns up in a Besson film and um and they uh they develop a friendship and uh and there's some secrets and it's kind of uh a nice little parable of now again and Besson yeah it's very it's very unbesson like actually because it's strangely unshowy and black and white and uh, before all those Besson camp little best on nature I think it's before we had any money as well wasn't before it? we had money yeah. Yeah. yeah amazing location work though for such a small budget in that film it really does look like a dead world mm. yeah Zardo Zardos right? Zardos sorry I always call it Zardo what I always call it Zardo Zardos it's because you're, um, you're French Sean Connery in pants Sean Connery in pants um, there's more to it than that <laughs> um, not much more the Hanukkah film Time of the Wolf um, which uh if you're going to see if you're going to see the road, you might as well see Time of the Wolf. Otherwise, because you know, um, in Time of the Wolf, um, basically the world has kind of ended, and um, it's about survival. And it has Isabelle Huppert, which if you want someone who's going to take you down a universe of uh, of hopelessness and uh, despair, has it has cast Isabelle Huppert. <laughs> uh, and there's all sorts of um, post-apocalyptic visions. It's very very slow. It's very disturbing. It's very Hanukkah. Uh, City of Lost Children we've talked about. I'm glad that someone mentioned Delicatessen. THX 1138. Um, other things. Um, Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, Which is being made uh, into a TV series coming out very soon with mm-hmm. um, Michael Shannon and... Um, Michael B. Jordan. Michael B. Jordan, yeah. yeah. All the Michaels together at last. Uh, Twelve Monkeys... Uh, I'm surprised that hasn't been mentioned yet. Mm. Clockwork Orange, of course. Someone, someone said, "Oh, you're not going to mention a Clockwork Orange?" Yes, we are. Clockwork <laughs> Orange, uh, Akira, yeah, which is the future vision of the world. I mean, it's, you know, set. You know, how much, how much influence do you want to have a film? Um, and um, Brazil, yes, which we can't put in our fights. We can't put in our fights just because we talked about it a lot. But an absolutely fantastic vision of the future as well, and again, one which has really held up. Um, do you have any honourable mentions, Joel, or do you want to go straight into your number one? I just have one honourable mention, which wasn't quite uh, valid for the, this, because it's, that's Tomorrowland, mm. uh, which is the Brad Bird film, uh, because it's actually quite a hopeful... This is incredibly optimistic. ...optimistic yeah. view, or it kind of argues in favour of optimism for mm. the future. Um, and it was a massive flop, and I wonder if those two <laughs> things might have something to do with each other. Yeah. People yeah. went to see Mad Max Fury Road instead. Yeah. <laughs> it was the same <laughs> time it came out. I think it got it got really maligned, didn't it? Did. it? I think it's quite good. I, I think really it's quite good. It. I think Brad Bird, you know, he he can really shoot action really well. I think he does great things with character. Um, I think it'll it'll come to be reassessed in the future. I think. Mm. It's quite I agree. Good film. I like Brad Bird. It's got yeah. George Clooney. Yeah. He's good. Mm. He's perfectly awesome. fine. He's perfectly serviceable. <laughs> Should um, have had Tom Cruise or something. More running. That would have done it. Yeah, he still looks cool about it. He looks like he's got <laughs> a cocktail in his hand while he does it. Um, so so um, we have uh, coming close to the end of the show, so we do have to get through our number ones. Um, so shall we do that? I'm going to tell you about my number one choice, which is... Um, a film I first saw about oh, God, maybe 20, 25 years ago, Alphaville, hey, 1965, right. Sorry. Jean-Luc <laughs> Godard film. Yes. Um, it, I don't know if anyone out there has seen it. It stars Eddie um, Constantine, 
um, as a uh, hard-bitten cop who's called something like Lemmy Caution. Um, and if, if you're able to look up the poster for that on the internet at the moment, he is a absolute dead ringer for Nigel Farage. <laughs> okay, and uh, you know, if you're I saw what you did on Twitter earlier in the week. It's chilling. It's chilling. Um, there's so much to love in this film. It's 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 a, it's a crazy um, view of of a sort of um, dystopian future where, um, as so many of them are, we are uh, controlled by a computer, overall computer. So there's this place called Alphaville. And what's so interesting about the way this film is shot is um, similar to how it sounds Code 46 was done. There's no uh, futuristic props. There's no futuristic sets, it looks like, today. Um, the main character, let me caution, is this, is this, this detective or secret agent who's on a mission. He's got a camera. He's constantly going around taking pictures of things just randomly, which, again, really resonates with how people do things now, this idea of constantly being photographed. And the other thing that I really, really um, liked that feels incredibly prescient was this idea that throughout the film there's just noises that happen, just, you know, just honks and kind of bleeps and, and sirens that, that, that just happen in rooms and people just, just ignore. It's just like a background noise, which very much sounds, you know, again, you know, 1965, I wouldn't have been... Uh, a reality, whereas it is a reality for us now. We're constantly hearing bleeps and blurps and squeaks and snatches of music and things like that, and, and essentially ignore it. We don't quite know where it comes from, what it means, and we don't really care. And that happens throughout this film. There's also a lot of stuff around surveillance, um, and again, you know, lots of stuff around people be, knowing lots of stuff around us and cameras everywhere, and language as well. I mean, I think mm. one of the things that's interesting, you know, that again we find that one of the things that that our modern connected world has done has made us very sensitive about the language we use and, and all of that of course is is very good but uh, in the book in the film there are um, dictionaries in the hotel rooms that, that are sort of constantly being updated and changing with what approved words are so there's a lot of stuff around that um, there's kind of sudden acts of violence in it um, it just feels to me although it's a surreal and, 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 and sort of odd film it feels to me like such an incredible view you know considering you know, this was, you know, over 50 years ago, a view of the of the present that feels incredibly up to date. It's 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 a, a film that if I'm suggesting anyone to get into a view of the dark future, check this out. 1965, Jean-Luc Godard directed Alphaville. Now, it's not necessarily a film everyone's seen. Anyone here seen it? I have. Yes. You have. Yeah. OK. OK. What do you think? Do you agree with me? I think I struggle with this film partly because. You know, there's the computer voice, that, mm -hmm. so this sort of uh, there's been some digital manipulation or something of this voice. It's a very low, monotone voice, mm -hmm. and whenever that voice came on, I felt physically sick. Yeah, because <laughs> it's so low, though, right? and, it, and I I really st I couldn't concentrate on the film because every time the computer spoke, I was like, oh god, this is so unpleasant. Which I guess is very effective, but it means that I never want to see that film ever again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair point. Yeah, <laughs> I I really like it, sir. Uh, Trail of a retro para futuristic Paris. I mean, he's so cool. Isn't he? The Let film, the film, the film is so cool. Yeah, that's that's the way I look at it. You know, I get where you're coming from, Joel. <laughs> um, but there's a kind of, um, I think it's said it oozes a kind of an attitude, doesn't it? it has mm. a noirish sensibility to it. I think it's yeah. I I, I really enjoy it yeah. for that yeah, I, for, for that world that Godard creates yeah it's a genre mashup isn't it it's a genre mashup and it's and it's obviously you know quite surreal as well you know it's certainly not conventional 
uh, in terms of it being a sci-fi thing. But um, yeah, it just it, to me, it, it 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 stayed with me all this time. It, I remember when I say when I saw it about when, you know twenty twenty five years ago when I first started it was when mobile phones just started kind of becoming not commonplace, but you'd see them around. So it was the first time you started having that idea of. You know, people would just suddenly start making a noise yeah. uh, in a room. And I was like, what the heck is going on? Um, and it would be really distracting. Uh, and then people would ignore it. And, and, and now that's so commonplace to us now that we don't really notice the oddness of it. But uh, I think it does it you know, brilliantly well. So there we are. That is Blake's number one choice for Dark Future, Alphaville. I like it. Okay. Good, Good choice. choice. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Well, would you like to tell us yours, Tim? Oh, you're going around a different way, are you? Oh, well, yeah. I thought we'd leave our guests the opportunity to wrap up the show. Okay. I have gone... A, I, I've kind of gone against my rules um, because I, I just feel... I feel bad if I didn't have... This is my number one. Um, my number one is, um, is Wally. Oh. Uh, sorry for already meant ruining it. No, I haven't ruined it. Sorry, go on. Um... As I always say, the first 20 minutes of this film are the finest 20 minutes that Pixar have ever done in terms of Even setting up. up. Even up. Wow. In terms of setting up a universe. Um, did you know that they consulted um, Roger Deakins and, and Dennis Murin on the creating of that universe? And when, you, when, you, when, you, when you look at it in, um, in hindsight, in retrospect, you'll see where that Deakins, is, Deakins aesthetic comes in. For those um, of you that aren't knows, Roger Deakins is a cinematographer, most, famous, most recently famous for Blade Runner. Blade Runner 2049. Carry on. Um, and I just feel what, what Pixar decided to do was um, move out of the comfort zone of the worlds they create and try and do something futuristic and do something which really takes a sci-fi angle and look at you know, what would happen if this world becomes a trash planet and... What if we have put a lonely robot into that into that mix? This robot is just going around, cleaning up waste and putting it into into compartments. And then suddenly, let's let's put a love interest in there. Let's that's the Pixar bit. Let's put Eva into this mix. And then you've got a, a love story there that is more more tangibly human than most human romance stories that you see at the cinema. And you've you just set up this 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 world and this universe and robots. And then suddenly you get thrust into this world and out of space where the future of these human beings who are basically sat on what looks like a um a spaceship which is actually kind of a, a, a they're stuck on a perpetual holiday of of sitting and being fat yeah with 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 a, with Sigourney Weaver as as the as the voice of the of the ship and then this kind of this this adventure story and love story angle picks off and um yeah, it 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 capsulates it capsulates again. I you know talked about, we started with Ready Player One, mm-hmm. where you said that it was a love into the last forty years of 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 popular culture. There's a lot of popular culture referencing throughout this film, um, and it does owe to a lot of the great sci-fi films. It owes a lot to Alien. There's a huge amount of Alien referencing in the film in terms of yeah Sigourney Weaver turns up yeah, and as that's a Alien reference number one. The way that the Alien some of the sound effects are remind me of Mother, remind me of the spaceship at mm-hmm. some of the things in Alien. There's a clear kind of um, when Ben Burt did some of the voices, he was thinking of that, and also the the script. Excuse me. Um, but yeah, it's, it has a lot of sci-fi convention and a lot of loving, and that's probably another reason why I love it. But at the heart of it is a romance story of two alien, of two of two robots. Um, it is, it isn't, a, it is a dark future, but it's a very optimistic dark future. Mm. Excellent choice. I, I love it, and um, I love Thomas Thomas Newman um, as a great soundtrack. You know, he's very good at these. He doesn't, you know, Thomas Newman doesn't do John Williams esque big big kind of themes. He does a lot of motifs and a lot of. Uh, 
sounds and and angles and I like Thomas Newman's scores for that reason. I think he's very good in this film. Fantastic yeah. choice. So thank you very much. And it, and it now comes down to our guest, John Backlitch, filmmaker extraordinaire, to give us the number one final definitive answer, Dark Future. I've chosen Strange Days. Strange oh, God, Days. Yes. Which is made in 1995, directed right. by Catherine, Catherine Bigelow. Bigelow. Um, set in the far-flung future of the year 2000. Yeah, well, it, 1999, 1999 yeah. It, yeah. So it's set in the last few days of the 20th century. Very uh, good. Building up to New Year's Eve. Uh, it's it's a, just a fantastic film. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ray Fiennes is, is the main character, plays quite against type. as this kind of sleazy um, tech dealer. He deals in this tech called Squid headsets, which allow someone to record their entire sensory experience uh, as a as a recordable memory so that others can then experience their entire um, their, in, their 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 memory in its entirety mm. um, and it's it kind of it uses that tech as part of the story it's very much it's set in LA it's very much taking on the whole backdrop of the beating of Rodney King mm. and how that was filmed uh, when he was beaten by the LAPD and then the, what that did to the city because and it's very much a film about when it was made. It's not really about the future because what I like about it is that it has this novel technology, but it doesn't blame that technology for any of the problems. Mm. Like something like Black Mirror does slide towards, you know, technology is going to be the doom of us. Actually, this says you know, police corruption and racism. These aren't problems created by new video technology, but that, but that technology does change the way that those problems work in society. Mm. Um, fantastic film, very grungy very dark style, a kind of just incredibly stylish. I, I, I haven't seen it on the big screen, but it, it was clearly designed to be seen on the biggest screen possible, the way it was shot. A fantastic choice, yeah. I mean, I remember seeing it at the time. Um, the only thing about it that I remember being slightly annoyed by at the time was... Um, young people won't understand this, but the, the advanced technology that he uses were clearly... Um, Sony mini discs. Um, they, they hadn't sort of, and I had one at the time, and like it certainly did not allow me to experience other people's sensory uh, overloads. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a very nitpicky uh, analysis there. Fantastic choice. Yeah, Strange Days. Catherine Bigelow, who continues to be a really interesting filmmaker. I think she was still. You know, and without uh, I, firstly, yeah, the support performances are amazing. Angela Bassett is fabulous in it. Yeah. Um, and but I think there's still kind of because of the association to James Cameron, there's still a huge slab of Cameron. Well, he wrote it. He wrote it, it, yeah. And it is still it, it, you can say you know they think they were married at one point, weren't they, at the time? Mm. And it, it, there's a, there's a real Cameron aesthetic to some of uh, Bigelow's directorial choices and, and the world. It reminds me of some of that. Terminator universe, the LA kind of Cameronish mm. universe, and yeah, it's very um, noir, it's very noirish, neon. neon yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great film. Um, and uh, as I say, you rightly say it was kind of at that time of Rodney King and the LA riots. That you can feel that throughout the whole of the feel of the film. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's it's this convoluted crime mystery story, and yet. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just an experience. It's a real experience. Well, what's interesting, having seen the projection of Catherine Bigelow's career since, is where she's gone into actual dealing with real issues, you know, coming up to Detroit recently. You mm. can see that, that that's where I think the Bigelow standard is really at its fore. It is in the dealing of the, the contemporary issues. You can tell that's really where Bigelow's And she worked heart. with um, uh, Ralph Fiennes in uh, The Hurt Locker, which I, is still remains one of my favourite yeah. performances of his as well. Forget yeah. that he's in that. Yeah, he's not in it for long, but he's 
he's, he leaves a mark in that yeah. film. That's a great film as well. Um, we have come up to the end of the show. We've run out of time. This is a nightmare scenario. It's a dark future without us, I know, but we're going to have to... <laughs> live through it we uh, really appreciate you listening we hope you have enjoyed the show we don't want you to feel down we don't want you to feel you know despairing about the future i think if we've learned one thing from our discussion today it's that you know the the, the best of these films are do have a, a glimmer of hope they are about saying let's not just give up on the future let's enjoy what we have now and try and build a better one none of these things are inevitable um, and I want to say a big thank you to, of course, Mr. Tim Wilson and, of course, sure. our special guest, Joel. Thanks for having me. And um, do look up um, Joel on Twitter is, is what? At The Great Damfino. If you look that up and then you can find out more about his short films, yep. uh, short film nights, which um, look to be absolutely fantastic. And the 3rd of May, I think. 2nd of May. The 2nd of May. Don't go on the 3rd. Don't listen to me um, for, for that in Sturchley. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. I'm going to play out with a track which will keep us all warm and optimistic um, by... Um, it's, it's not funny, it's from a film, but it's not really um, anything relevant except the title of the band. The band that produced this was Alphaville, which was my choice, Blake's choice for the number one uh, of Dark Future films, and the track you probably know, but uh, stay positive, it's Forever Young. Goodbye, everyone, and have a fantastic weekend. Take care. Thanks for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please consider joining our listener supporters. You can do this by clicking the support tab on our website or go direct to Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Brum Radio. Brum Radio shows are streamed online at the Brum Radio Mixcloud page and you can find more podcasts at brumradio.com.